Book One, Chapter Two of The Mermaid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mermaid by Lily Dougal. Chapter Two The Sad Eyed Girl. One evening in early summer, Caius went a fishing. He started to walk several miles to an inlet where at high tide the sea trout came within reach of the line. The country road was of red clay, and turning from the more thickly settled district, Caius followed it through a wide wood of budding trees and out where it skirted the top of low red cliffs, against which the sea was lapping. Then his way led him across a farm. So far he had been walking indolently, happy enough, but here the shadow of the pain of the world fell upon him. This farm was a lonesome place close to the sea. There was no appearance of prosperity about it. Caius knew that the farmer, Day by name, was a churl, and was said to keep his family on short rations of happiness. As Caius turned off the public road, he was not thinking specially of the bleak appearance of the particular piece of farmland he was crossing, or of the reputation of the family who lived upon the increase of its acres. But his attention was soon drawn to three children swinging on a gate which hung loosely in the log fence not far from the house. The eldest was an awkward-looking girl about twelve years of age, the second was a little boy, the youngest was a round-limbed, blond baby of two or three summers. The three stood upon the lowest bar of the gate, clinging to the upper spars. The eldest leaned her elbows on the top and looked over. The baby embraced the middle bar and looked through. They had set the rickety gate swinging petulantly, and it lashed and unlashed itself, with the sort of sound that the swaying of some dreary wind would give it. The children seemed to swing there, not because they were happy, but because they were miserable. As Caius came with light step up the lane, fishing gear over his shoulder, the children looked at him disconsolately, and when he approached the gate the eldest stepped down and pulled it open for him. "'Anything the matter?' he asked stopping his quick tread and turning when he had passed through. The big girl did not answer, but she let go the gate, and when it jerked forward the baby fell. She did not fall far, nor was she hurt, but as Caius picked her up and patted her cotton clothes to shake the dust out of them, it seemed to him that he had never seen so sad a look in a baby's eyes. Large, dark, dewy eyes they were, circled around with curly lashes and they looked up at him out of a wistful little face that was framed by a wreath of yellow hair. Caius lifted the child, kissed her, put her down, and went on his way. He only gave his action half a thought at the time, but all his life afterwards he was sorry that he had let the baby go out of his arms again, and thankful that he had given her that one kiss. His path now lay close by the house and on to the sea-cliff behind. The house stood in front of him, four bare wooden walls, brown-painted, and without veranda or ornament. Its barns, large and ugly, were close beside it. Beyond, some stunted firs grew in a dip of the cliff, but on the level ground the farmer had felled every tree. The homestead itself was ugly, but the land was green, and the sea lay broad and blue, its breast swelling to the evening sun. The air blew sweet over field and cliff, and the music of the incoming tide was heard below the pine-fringed bank. Caius, however, was not in the receptive mind which appreciates outward things. His attention was not thoroughly aroused from himself 
till the sound of harsh voices struck his ear. Between the farmhouse and the barns, on a place worn bare by the feet of men and animals, the farmer and his wife stood in hot dispute. The woman, tall, gaunt, and ill-dressed, spoke fast, passion and misery in all her attitude and in every tone and gesture. The man, chunky in figure and churlish in demeanor, held a horsewhip in his hand, answering his wife back word for word in language both profane and violent. It did not occur to Caius that the whip was in his hand otherwise than by accident. The men in that part of the world were not in the habit of beating their wives. But no sooner did he see the quarrel than his wrath rose hot against the man. The woman, being the weaker, he took for granted that she was entirely in the right. He faltered in his walk, and hesitating, stood to look. His path was too far off for him to hear the words that were poured forth in such torrents of passion. The boy's strong sentiment prompted him to run and collar the man. His judgment made him doubt whether it was a good thing to interfere between man and wife. A certain latent cowardice in his heart made him afraid to venture nearer. The sum of his emotions caused him to stop, go on a few paces, and stop to look and listen again, his heart full of concern. In this way he was drawing further away, when he saw the farmer step nearer his wife and menace her with the whip. In an instant more he had struck her, and Caius had run about twenty feet forward to interfere, and halted again, because he was afraid to approach so angry and powerful a man. Caius saw the woman clearly now, and how she received this attack. She stood quite still at her full stature, ceasing to speak or gesticulate, folded her arms, and looked at her husband. The look in her hard, dark face, the pose of her gaunt figure, said more clearly than any passionate words, Hold, if you value your life, you have gone too far, you have heaped up punishment enough for yourself already. The husband understood this language, vaguely it might be, but still he understood enough to make him draw back, still growling and menacing with the whip. Caius was too young to understand what the woman expressed. He only knew strength and weakness as physical things. His mind was surging with pity for the woman and revenge against the man. Yet even he gathered the knowledge that for the time the quarrel was over, that interference was now needless. He walked on, looking back as he went to see the farmer go away to his stables, and the wife stalk past him up toward the byre that was nearest the sea. As Caius moved on, the only relief his mind could find at first was to exercise his imagination in picturing how he could avenge the poor woman. In fancy, he saw himself holding Day by the throat, throwing him down, belaboring him with words and blows, meting out punishment more than adequate. All he actually did, however, was to hold on his way to the place of his fishing. The path had led him to the edge of the cliff. Here he paused, looking over the bank to see if he could get down and continue his walk along the shore. But the soft, sandy bluff here jutted so that he could not even see at what level the tide lay. After spending some minutes in scrambling halfway down, and returning because he could descend no further, he struck backward some paces behind the farm buildings, supposing the descent to be easier, where bushes grew in the shallow chine. In the top of the cliff there was a little dip, where formed an excellent place for an outside cellar or root house for such farm stores as might be buried deep beneath the snow against the frost of winter. The rough door of such a cellar appeared to the side of this small declivity, and as Caius came round the back of the byre in sight of it, 
He was surprised to see the farmer's wife holding the latch of its door in her hand and looking vacantly into the dark interior. She looked up and answered the young man's greeting with apathetic manner, apparently quite indifferent to the scene she had just passed through. Caius, his mind still in the rush of indignation on her behalf, stopped at the sight of her, wondering what he could do or say to express the wild pity that surged within him. But the woman said, The tide's late tonight, exactly as she might have remarked with dry civility that it was fine weather. Yes, said Caius, I suppose it will be. She was looking into the cellar, not towards the edge of the bank. With a decent strong tide, she remarked, you can hear the waves in this cave. Whereupon she walked slowly past him back toward her house. Caius took the precaution to step after her round the end of the byre, just to see that her husband was not lying in wait for her there. There was no one to be seen but the children at a distance, still swinging on the gate, and a laborer who was driving some cows from the field. Caius slid down onto the red shore, and found himself in a wide, semicircular bay, near the point which ended it on this side. He crept round the bay inwards for half a mile, till he came to the mouth of the creek to which he was bound. All the long spring evening he sat angling for the speckled sea-trout, until the dusk fell and the blue water turned gray, and he could no longer see the ruddy color of the rock on which he sat. All the long spring evening the trout rose to his fly, one by one, and were landed in his basket easily enough, and soft-throated frogs piped to him from the ponds in the fields behind, and the smell of the budding verdure from the land mingled with the breeze from the sea. But Caius was not happy. He was brooding over the misery suggested by what he had just seen, breathing his mind after its unusual rush of emotion, and indulging its indignant melancholy. It did not occur to him to wonder much why the object of his pity had made that quick errand to the cellar in the chime, or why she had taken interest in the height of the tide. He supposed her to be inwardly distracted by her misery. She had the reputation of being a strange woman. End of chapter 2